Good morning, friends. We want to talk now about elders. Uh, my name is Mark Dever. I'm the pastor of the Capitol Hill Baptist Church in Washington, D.C., along with Andy Johnson and Stephen Wall, one of our other elders. Stephen, you want to stand up? Uh, at the break, you might want to talk to Stephen as well. Stephen uh, has been in our church for about 20 years, and he has for years now served as one of our elders. He's not in the pay of the church. Uh, Andy Johnson, who just spoke for years, was serving like Stephen, as one of our elders, not in the pay of the church. But then he came on the staff of the church. We began to pay him. I have been there for over 20 years in the pay of the church as the main preaching pastor. What I want to talk about in this session is elders. Because part of what we see very clearly in the New Testament, the structure of the local church, is that there are elders in the normal local church in the New Testament. And the first thing we want to note about the elders of a local church is that the elders are exactly that, elders, plural. There's more than one in the local churches in the New Testament. The New Testament never tells us a specific number of elders we're supposed to have in every local church. It, there's no, no, no passage that says there must be 12 elders in every local church. There, there's nothing like that. But it does regularly refer to elders in the plural in a local church. So if you go to the book of Acts, you can look in Acts 14 or 16 or 20, where Andy just was with the meeting with the Ephesian elders, plural, from one congregation. Or, or the next chapter, Acts 21, or in Titus 1.5, or in James 5.14, if you're sick, go to the elders of your church. The assumption James is making is that there are elders. My own experience is I came to the Capitol Hill Baptist Church as the only recognized elder. I was the only preacher, the only pastor. They didn't have any sort of lay office like Steve is in, Stephen's in, of elder. It's just the guy who preaches is an elder. But the most useful thing that's happened to me as a pastor of that church in 25 years was us changing our current church constitution to have a plurality of elders, to try to have more than one elder very useful so where possible you want to see more elders in a local church than simply a lone preacher and having those elders rooted in the congregation is helpful to the life of the church again probably the single most helpful thing in my pastoral ministry during my 25 years at capitol hill baptist church has been the congregation's recognition of other men besides myself as elders So, who should be an elder? What should be their qualifications? Where do you go in the Bible if you want to find the qualifications of an elder? Let me see a hand. No, let me see a hand. Okay, brother, what's your name? Richard, where do you go in the Bible? Where do you go in the Bible to find the qualifications of an elder? Which, first or second? First Timothy, what chapter? Chapter 3. All right, good. Thank you, brother. 1 Timothy chapter 3, Paul gives very clear qualifications for an elder. A very similar list is found where else? Titus chapter 1. Yes. Uh, We won't take time to read those now. I trust you're familiar with those. Well, you know what? Since we're talking about elders, let's let's take time to read that. 1 Timothy chapter 3. We'll just read Timothy's list. It's very similar to the one he gives to Timothy. Very similar to the one he gives to Titus. 1 Timothy chapter 3, 
Here is a trustworthy saying, if anyone sets his heart on being an overseer, he desires a noble task. Now the overseer must be above reproach, the husband of but one wife, temperate, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not given to drunkenness, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own family well and see that his children obey him with proper respect. If anyone does not know how to manage his own family, how can he take care of God's church? He must not be a recent convert or he may become conceited and fall under the same judgment as the devil. He must also have a good reputation with outsiders so that he will not fall into disgrace and into the devil's trap. This characteristic, uh, this list of characteristics are notable for being things really that are commended to all Christians. Uh, All Christians in the New Testament are to be like this, except for that ability to teach and not being a recent convert. All the other things you can see are charged to all Christians. So I think that the scriptures are sufficient to teach us here, but I don't think that Paul would say this list is exhaustive. There are other things that you would care about in your local church. So it's interesting to note that this list of virtues that Paul gives to Timothy, or the one to Titus in chapter 1, are not all the virtues which a Christian should exhibit. But these are all, or almost all, virtues that would have been recognized as such by the surrounding culture at the time. They're virtues which would have commended the gospel. So Paul doesn't mention here regular Bible reading, that it's good. He doesn't mention your prayer, that it's necessary. Paul mentions neither of those things here, but I want my elders to be men who read their Bibles regularly and men who pray regularly. Well, that's not in this list. It's in the New Testament. It's in the Bible, but it's not in this list. I think for Paul's purposes here, he was specifically with Timothy and Titus trying to emphasize those things that would help the church appear respectable to the world. Like paying your bills on time. You know, he says here in, that, in verse 7, he must also have a good reputation with outsiders. He, he wants us to be cheerful, humble, helpful. Things that even most pagans recognize as good. Because the elders' lives should commend the gospel. Now this doesn't mean that we follow the world's standards in picking our leaders. We shouldn't imitate those churches that simply find the community leaders who are members of the church and then make them elders. No, instead of this, we are to search for those of good character, of good reputation, who are able to handle the word, who are fruitful, and those should be the marks of good leaders in a church. This character of a leader in a church is a character of someone whose life is not built for themselves but whose life is built to help others to help non-christians come to know christ to help christians be built up thus paul says here they should not be lovers of money but philozenoi lovers of strangers so it's the kind of zambian who would take an american into his home that's what you want for an elder Someone who will reach out to a sojourner. That's what hospitable literally is. True church leaders will be other-centered. Well, I hope that's, that's helpful. I just want to say that historically, this is not a new conversation. 
Churches have always had people who perform the function of elders, even if they've called them by other names. The two most common New Testament names for this office were the one Paul uses here, episkopos, which in English we'll take as bishop or overseer, epi, over, scopos, seer, overseer, episkopos, bishop, is how we almost transliterate it. And the other word that's used interchangeably is presbyteros, elder, uh, from which we get presbyterian. Now, I think when a lot of evangelical Christians, at least back in America, hear the word elder today, they immediately think of Presbyterian. Yet, friends, it's true that the first Congregationalists back in the 16th century taught that eldership was an office in the New Testament church. And while it is historically accurate to associate elders with Presbyterians, because Presbyterians by their nature have always have elders, it's not accurate to associate them only with Presbyterians. Because many other Bible-believing Christians have had elders. Uh, even those people who are in Baptist churches historically have found elders. So, for example, in my own country, you could find back in the 1700s and the 1800s, uh, many Baptist churches with elder so-and-so as their pastor, and second and third elders in the same congregation. Uh, the first president of our denomination, the Southern Baptist Convention, uh, wrote a book on church life in which he strongly advocated the plurality of elders in one local church. Now, that's, that situation changed in America. Baptist churches, by and large, stopped doing that. And I'm not entirely sure why. I've, I've encouraged friends who are doing PhDs to try to do dissertations on that, to figure that one out. But it's very hard to figure out historically why something stops. It's very challenging. But I do know that Baptist publications were referring to leaders by the title of elder up into the 20th century. And while most Baptist churches in America today probably don't have elders recognized as elders beyond their preaching pastor, more and more Baptist churches are doing that. Certainly our church does. Uh, the, the church that I served in England was a Baptist church, and we had a number of men serving as elders. The church that I helped to plant in Boston, Massachusetts, back in the 1980s, was a Baptist church, and we started it with a plurality of elders. So there are more and more churches, even that are Baptist churches, that are doing that. I want to now spend our time trying to define what I mean by elder and distinguishing the elders first from other groups that we may think of as part of the leadership of the local church to help us understand more of what at least I'm meaning when I use the word elder. Sometimes people are confused and they think, well, isn't anyone who's on, you know, working in, in the pay of the church, shouldn't they be considered an elder? Uh, and in the United States, many of our churches are so large that we can have multiple people on staff, not just the preacher, who are paid by the church. So our own church, we have over 900 members, and Andy and I are both paid full time, as are five other pastors. Uh, so we have many of us who are paid full time. Well, what's the difference between the elders and the church staff? Because we have other people who are paid by the church who are not elders. So like Logan, you want to stand up? Logan's on the staff of our church, but he's not recognized as an elder in the church. So what's the difference between the elders and the church staff? Well, the, the church has the freedom to pay someone to do particular work for the church. Those people that a church pays to do work are going to be most familiar with 
the work day to day. Uh, sometimes they can have training, like at a Bible college here. They're obviously normally going to have a certain degree of godliness or maturity, or, or you wouldn't hire them. And certainly, members of the church staff may be elders. So most of our church staff is comprised of men who are elders in our church. But most of our elders are not paid by the church. Most of our elders are members of the church who do other things for their work. Uh, when we call an, another pastor, someone as a pastor, to be in the pay of the church, we are recognizing them as an elder. But we could have another paid position that the person doesn't need to be an elder. So, for example, we have someone who works full-time at our church as a church administrator. Uh, we're looking at the, the finances, the building, stuff like that. Well, that person doesn't need to be an elder. They can be an elder. They could be someone who meets all the biblical qualifications. But they don't have to in order to function in that position. Or our young pastoral assistants. We have people like Logan. Who are themselves, we think, promising. They could possibly be elders in the future. But they don't need to already be elders. They're how we invest in young men. And they help to provide wonderful care for our church in various ways. But they don't have to be elders. I think in a desire to make sure that we as a congregation feel the responsibility, not simply to hire elders, but to try to be the kind of spiritually fruitful church that sees them raised up among us, we want to have more and more lay elders in our church. So in our congregation, I think we have, I don't know, I haven't counted this up, I should have counted up for this talk. We have maybe 28 elders right now, something like that. 26, 28, somewhere in there. And of those, there are five or six of us who are full-time paid. Three and three, so six of us. Um, and the others have other kinds of jobs. Um, yeah, we'll, we can take questions on that a little bit later. So elders and being paid by the church are not quite the same thing. It, it's also helpful to distinguish elders from deacons. Those are the two offices that are mentioned for the local church in the New Testament. And I think a lot of churches in practice have confused the role of the deacon with the role of the elder in the New Testament. Uh, the concerns of the deacons in the New Testament are the practical details of church life. I think by implication we could say administration, maintenance, uh, the care of church members with physical needs like what we see in Acts chapter 6. All in order to promote the unity of the church and the ministry of the word. If you look at the qualifications just further on in 1 Timothy chapter 3, I think what's most noticeable in comparing that list of qualifications of deacons with the qualification list Paul has just given about elders isn't their differences, it's their similarities. Both overseers, elders, and deacons need to be <clears throat> reputable, blameless, trusted, husband of one wife, Sober, temperate, generous people. Indeed, so similar are these two lists of traits that the striking thing is that with such similar qualifications, Paul and these early Christians could so clearly recognize two separate groups of officers in the church. So, what's the difference? Well, again, if you go back to Acts chapter 6, that's where most of us would understand the office of deacon comes from. 
we see the root of this distinction of roles and responsibilities between the elders and the deacons played out in these early deacons and the apostles. If you turn over to Acts chapter 6, let's look at this for just a moment. I assume you're familiar with the story. In uh, verse 2, after the complaining in the church at Jerusalem had begun, that the distribution of food for the widows between the Hebrew-speaking widows and the Greek-speaking widows wasn't equitable, wasn't fair. We read in verse 2, So the twelve, those are the apostles, and they're functioning in the Jerusalem church at this point, very much like elders. So the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said, It would not be right for us to neglect the, the deaconing, the ministry, it's the word in the Greek, the deaconing of the word of God in order to deacon, wait on tables. So from this, I think we can say very clearly that the ministry of the word of God seems to be the central responsibility of the elders. Let me just repeat that. That's probably the most important thing we're going to say in this session. The ministry of the word of God is the central responsibility of the elders. And it is absolutely central to the church. When it's characterized again down in verse 4, we find the apostles resolving, we will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. They would literally be deacons of the word. Which fits with what we see them doing later in Acts chapter 15 at the Jerusalem Council. uh, Or again in Acts chapter 20 in the passage that Andy read where Paul was meeting with those elders from the church in Ephesus, it's clear that the elders must be qualified to teach God's word. So it seems like the role of elders is fundamentally to lead God's people by teaching God's word. So that teaching of God's word and their lives that are exemplary are how they lead the church. So summing up this point, the elder's authority is related to his task of teaching. He's to be a pastor, a shepherd. We who are elders are to serve as overseers. And in Acts 6, we see the elders proposing something to the assembly. Paul in 1 Timothy 5 refers to the elders as directing the affairs of the church. He refers to them as preaching and teaching. But chiefly it seems that the role of the elder is to lead by patiently and carefully teaching God's word. I think a lot of our churches today would be really helped by distinguishing again that role of elder from deacon. Both are good things to do, uh, but both need to be done for the health of the local church. Another question that's sometimes asked about the role of the elders is, let's say you have a plurality of elders, so like in our church, What's the difference between my role and the other pastors, the other elders? Is there such a thing as a senior pastor or a lead preaching pastor in the New Testament? Well, I think if you ask the question, does the Bible teach that there is to be a senior pastor figure alongside or inside the eldership? I think the answer to that is no, not directly. Having said that, I do think that we can discern a distinct role among the elders for one who is the primary public teacher of the church. Now, behind this word pastor is the the word which we could also translate shepherd. 
We know that as pastors, that's what we basically are. Uh, you have the related word for shepherd appearing a few times, like in the, again in the passages that Andy referenced in 1 Peter 5 or in Acts 20. But in none of these examples does a separate position, a separate office from elder seem to be indicated. Indeed, it's very clear. Uh, turn back to Acts 20, that passage we were looking at with Andy, where Paul meets with the elders from the church at Ephesus. It's very clear here that elder, bishop, overseer, and shepherd, pastor are used interchangeably of the same group of people. So you look in chapter 20, verse 17. We read from Miletus, and that's a, a port uh, not far from Ephesus there in Turkey. From Miletus, Paul sent to Ephesus for the elders of the church. So he sent for the presbyteroi. And then look down at verse 28. So he's meeting with these presbyteroi, these, these elders. And he says, keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. There's the word bishop, overseer, episcopoi. So the Presbyterians are to be Episcopalians. The elders are the bishops. It's the same thing. Be shepherds. Now pastors. He tells them to pastor the church of God, which is bought with his own blood. So bishops, overseers, elders, presbyteros, shepherds, poimenes, pastor. It's all the same people. These are, are three different word groups that refer to the same office. Now, in none of these examples do we see a separate office indicated merely by use of these different words. These words seem to be used interchangeably to describe the same group of people. Having said that, let me give you four glimpses of the kind of role that I fill in my church. And that you, if you're the main preacher at your church, just stand up for a second. If you are the main preacher at your church, please stand just for a moment. So you are the one who normally preaches at your church on the Lord's Day. Okay, stay standing just for a second. So to you all who are standing, I'm not saying that your office, your role, doesn't exist in the New Testament. It's there as an elder. And I think we see some hints that even in these first churches, one of the elders more normally did the kind of stuff that we do. Okay, be seated. And let me, let me give you what I think these, these hints are. Here's a, a glimpse number one. Even in the New Testament, there were some men who moved from place to place, like Timothy or Titus, who served as elders. But there were some who presumably didn't. So look over at Titus chapter 1. Paul sends Titus to Crete because he's concerned about the health of the churches there. He says in Titus chapter 1 verse 5. Titus chapter 1 verse 5. The reason that I left you, I Paul left you Titus in Crete was that you Titus might straighten out what was left unfinished. And appoint elders in every town, as I directed you. So it seems like Titus is going to be making sure that there are, because that word appoint in English sounds like a particular way of doing it, and the Greek word is not that specific. 
It just means make sure that there are. It doesn't mean Titus has the authority to say, Richard and Thomas and David, you are the elders of the church. That's not what's implied here at all. He just needs to make sure that there are. He doesn't speak to how it's done. Make sure that there are elders in every congregation. Well, I'm going to assume that means those guys that he makes sure are elders in every congregation, they're not moving there from elsewhere, like Timothy did in, into Ephesus. They're men who are recognized as leaders in the church. They live there. And that would be more like in our church the role that the other elders have, particularly the ones who aren't in the pay of the church, men who've lived and worked and labored in the community. So Timothy came from outside to go to Ephesus, these men that Titus were seeing established as elders in these local churches in Crete, they presumably were already there. That'd be one evidence of a kind of distinction. Second, there were some who were supported full-time by the flock. Um, we know this in 1 Timothy 5 or Philippians chapter 4. But there were others who worked at another job, like Paul did sometimes, when he thought it would be more helpful to establish the gospel in an area. So one would think that not all the elders Titus saw to it to appoint, to have appointed in, in Crete would have been paid full time. The churches would have been large enough to do that. But we do know that in New Testament churches, sometimes men were set aside full time for the teaching and preaching of the word. So that would be a distinction between elders. Number three, it's interesting to note that Paul wrote to Timothy alone all those instructions in First and Second Timothy. When we know from Acts chapter 20 that there were a bunch of other elders in the Ephesian church. So maybe Timothy had not just a friendship with Paul, but maybe he had some certain kind of recognized leadership, some unique function among the elders. And that fits with a fourth thing we see, which is the last suggestion I'll make. The letters of Jesus to the seven churches in Revelation 2 and 3. Do you remember what they're addressed to? Each one is addressed not to the church as a whole, they're addressed to the messenger of each church. Singular. And that could well be to the preacher of each church. Well, none of these are commands, uh, but they are descriptions that are consistent with most churches' practice of setting aside at least one, or perhaps more sometimes. Uh, because Bobby Jameson, who was here just about a month ago, does most of the preaching at our church other than me. So I'll do most of it. And then Bobby does the sort of second most amount. But none of these are commands, as I say, but they are descriptions that are consistent with most churches' practice of setting aside at least one among the elders who isn't necessarily from their own community. I, I wasn't born and brought up in Washington, D.C. I was brought there specifically by this church to be their preacher. They, had, they looked around and they prayed and they contacted me. And they support me, and they give me the primary teaching responsibility of the church. Now, you may not find these observations persuasive, but following these examples in the New Testament, I think that a congregation certainly has the freedom, we can at least say that, the congregation has the freedom to set aside men full-time for the teaching of the Word, and to provide for their support and if necessary, even to do like the church did calling me, call somebody from somewhere else to serve in this. And that person is essentially a full-time pastor. Whether like in our church, it's large and has several pastors on staff, you'd call one a senior pastor or like Andy, an associate pastor. 
We must, however, remember that the preacher or pastor, moi, is fundamentally one of the elders of the congregation. I don't have two votes on the eldership. I got one vote on the eldership. We can talk about this more in the Q&A time at the end today, but I think the service that we have together, all the elders together, has the immense benefits of rounding out my gifts and making up for some of my defects. They supplement my lack of judgment. It helps to create support in the congregation for decisions. Having this plurality of elders leaves the leaders less exposed to unjust criticism. It makes the leadership more rooted and permanent. Because most of our elders are not in the pay of the church. The church at some weird members meeting could vote to fire every single paid elder from the staff. And most of our elders are still right there. Most of our elders are, are not paid. They're doing the paying. And most of the elders are the men in the community who are members of our church who know the word and are leaders in our church. I think a plurality of elders encourages the church to take more responsibility for the spiritual growth of its own members and helps them to make the church less dependent on its employees. So we're not just a barren church spiritually and we go hire somebody as an elder because we never produce any elders under God. No, we're having a lot of men raised up as elders. But we may, for the main preacher, we may go outside our own number when we need that. Which brings me more to the topic of the day. Let me discuss the relationship between the elders and the congregation. The relationship between the elders and the congregation. In our next session, I'll talk about congregationalism. I'll pull together a bunch of the stuff that Andy and I have both been teaching this morning. But right now, let me just touch specifically on this relationship between the elders and the church. In general, the relationship between the elders and the local congregation that they serve should be marked by many evidences of godly character and mutual dependence on God. Let me just mention five characteristics of this relationship. You could come up with a lot more over lunch. Let me just mention five. Recognition, trust, godliness, carefulness, and results. Let me mention that list again. Recognition, trust, godliness, carefulness, and results. First, clear recognition. Elders are to be recognized by the church as gifts from God for the good of the church. The church should therefore delegate to the elders the duties of teaching and leading the church. And these duties are to be revoked when it is clear that the elders are acting in a way that is contrary to Scripture. And for their part, the elders must recognize the God-given responsibility of the congregation. So in Matthew 18, Jesus did not tell the elders to make the final decision about whether or not somebody's put out of fellowship of the church. He told specifically the ecclesia to do it. I was preaching that passage one time in Brazil. And I I don't speak Portuguese. And I was being translated by a Presbyterian theology professor. And we were coming to Matthew chapter 18. And I was quoting our Lord there. And I said, And if he does not repent, tell it to the elders. That's what I said in English. And Silvio, the brother who was translating me, starts to translate in Portuguese, 
And if he does not repent, tell it to the... And then he pauses and he looks over to me and he says, Mark, it doesn't say elders, it says the church. And I said in English to Silvio, exactly. <laughs> Dear Presbyterian brother, I love elders. I'm a big champion of elders among Baptists. But Jesus never taught what you teach. Jesus specifically, the word he chose was not the word elder. He chose the word ecclesia. One of only two times he ever uses the word. He meant that very deliberately. Elders, I deny you have the ability to excommunicate anybody. It's not in the Bible. The congregation is the only group mentioned on the mouth of Jesus with the responsibility and ability to excommunicate someone from the local church. There needs to be a clear recognition of the mutual responsibilities. There's also another, uh, uh, um, well, and that also, I think, speaks, by the way, to Andy's talk earlier. The importance of understanding who is a member of the congregation. It brings up the importance of membership, hugely. Number two, let me uh, go for a, a second characteristic in this relationship. A heartfelt trust. A heartfelt trust. The church should trust, protect, respect, honor the elders. You look over in 1 Timothy chapter 5. Verse 17, the elders who direct the affairs of the church well are worthy of double honor, especially those whose work is preaching and teaching. The elders who should direct the affairs of the church, the church should submit to their leadership. So the writers of the Hebrews wrote in the verse we looked at several times earlier this morning, Hebrews 13, 17, obey your leaders and submit to their authority. They keep watch over you as men who must give an account. Obey them so that their work will be a joy and not a burden, for that would be of no advantage to you. So that's heartfelt trust. Number three, evident godliness. Evident godliness. We've seen the emphasis in Paul's letters to Timothy and Titus on the elders being blameless. So if you look over in Titus chapter 1, verse 6, Paul wrote, An elder must be blameless, the husbands of but one wife, a man whose children believe and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. The elder then must be willing to have a life that is open to inspection, indeed a home that is actively open to outsiders, giving hospitality and folding others into their lives. So uh, evident godliness. Number four, sincere carefulness. Elders should be marked by use of their authority, which shows that they understand the church belongs not to them, but to Christ. Christ has purchased the church with his own blood, and therefore the church should be cherished, treated carefully and gently, led faithfully and purely for the glory of God and the good of the church. The elders will give an account to Christ for their stewardship of the congregation. And number five, beneficial results. Just as in the home or in our own relationship with God, a humble recognition of rightful authority brings benefits. So in a church, when authority is used with the consent of the congregation, for the good of the congregation, the congregation will benefit as God builds his church through the teachers he gives to his church. Satan's lie that authority is never to be trusted because authority is always tyrannous and oppressive. Satan's lie will be subverted by the benevolent practice of and recognition of the elder's authority in the context of of the congregation. Brothers and sisters, I think we know that in the Bible, Satan, when he's very upset that God made Adam and Eve, 
tries to subvert God's work by getting Adam and Eve to feel that when God tells them no, it's because he doesn't love them. Satan's basic lie is that you can't tell, be told no if the person really loves you. But that's not true. God loved Adam and Eve very much and knew what was best for them. He knew they should not eat that fruit. That's always the basic lie in this fallen world about authority. It is that all authority is evil and wrong. That's just not true. Authority, when it's used well, is wonderfully life-giving. We'll talk about that more in the last talk today about raising up elders. Well, let me give you some wise words from a pastor in a church when he was exhorting the congregation about a new pastor. And then, uh, and then I'll open up to a few minutes of questions about this before we have another break. Edward Griffin exhorted this congregation back in the United States in New Jersey with some words, I think, that instruct us well on how to regard not just the pastor, which was uh, Griffin's reason for giving this instruction, but also for how we should respect all the elders that God gives us in our local church. Griffin said to the congregation that he had pastored for like 40 years. For your own sake and your children's sake, cherish and revere him whom you have chosen to be your pastor. The new pastor was there. Griffin was kind of handing things over. Already he loves you and he will soon love you as bone of his bone and flesh of his flesh. It will be equally your duty and your interest to make his labors as pleasant to him as possible. Do not demand too much. Do not require visits too frequent. Should he spend in this way half the time which some demand, he must wholly neglect his studies, if not sink early under the burden. Do not report to him all the unkind things which may be said against him, nor frequently in his presence allude to opposition, if opposition should arise. Though he is a minister of Christ, consider that he has the feelings of a man. Brothers, much more could be said on elders. Any quick, brief questions that you think might be of help to other churches than just your own about what we've been thinking about about elders in this session? If you've got a question, if you put your hand up, our brother's going to run around with the microphone. Just state your name, your church, and then your question. And do it slowly and loudly because I am even now still getting used to the accent. It's a good question. Let me take your second one first, who appointed them. I think by implication we can say it's the local church that did it. We're not given the mechanism how, but because what Paul says in 2 Timothy 4.3 about holding... Well, let me just turn there. If you look at 2 Timothy 4, verse 3, he says, The time will come when men will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires... They will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. 
very interesting. Paul is saying there's going to be false teaching coming in the future in Ephesus. And he doesn't just blame the teachers. Because he realizes the way somebody gets to be a teacher is people pick them. So I think that's the assumption. Um, also in Galatians chapter 1, when Paul is writing to these very young Christians, this is one of the earliest letters we think Paul wrote, he specifically tells them in verses 7 and 8 and 9, that if anybody is preaching a gospel other than what you accepted, let him be eternally condemned. He's not saying that to elders and deacons. He's saying that to just members of churches. So I would say we don't have any clear instruction on this. So I think there's some amount of liberty in our churches. But I would say all the indications are somehow the congregation chooses those to serve as elders. Now I'm forgetting your first question. What was your first question, brother? Yeah. Right. Do, do you mean do they essentially have a veto in who could serve as an elder? They can. They can. They can cancel somebody out. Yeah. Then you have to establish good reputation even to outsiders. Yeah. Now, when you are choosing leaders, outsiders are not there. How do you get that information? Ah, that's a good question. I think there's certainly limitations that we're going to have. But if, uh, if we know each other in the local church and we're thinking about Tom as an elder, but, you know, we all live in the same community and we know that Tom's neighbors can't stand Tom. Because Tom is just a jerk. I mean, he talks about the other people's yard. He talks about the other people's kids. You know, he's just his mouth is always going and, and tearing down people. Then Tom may trust in Christ savingly, but Tom would be a bad witness for the church. So I think he's not saying we're supposed to hire private investigators on anybody that we might think of as elders. But we should keep our ears open. Does this man, like, is he a boss at work? And do his employees speak favorably of him? Do we hear that he has a good reputation in the community? Or is his reputation so bad it kind of stinks? You know, so I think it's more that. Not that we have to conduct an investigation. But that it matters what others think. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. I got nothing better than that. That's all I got. (laughs) Any other questions here? We have about five more minutes before our break. You see, on these qualifications, sometimes uh, one wonders. When they say, when Paul said, a husband of one wife. Yeah. I mean, this comes up all the time in societies where polygamy has been practiced. But polygamy was not practiced in that society. So that leads me to think that what Paul is talking about is a faithfulness to one woman. Uh, he's not directly commenting on polygamy. I think we can go back to the Old Testament and we can see the example of Adam and Eve to see that God means there to be monogamy. And we can see the the sinful results that bring about polygamy and that come from polygamy in the lives of everybody from Abraham to Solomon. Uh, but I don't think that's directly what Paul has in mind here. Though I think we can, we can see that it would have the implication of meaning if a man has two wives and he's committed to having two wives, he would not serve in this role. Yeah. It doesn't answer the thorny pastoral question, 
of what do you do if a polygamous husband gets converted? That's a separate question and a good one. But look who's here. (laughs) Thank you, Pastor Mark.